What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Johnny Kelly. Johnny is mostly known for his tenure as the drummer for Typo Negative, but his resume includes Quiet Riot, Danzig, Silver Tomb, A Pale Horse Named Death, Kill Devil, and his latest endeavor, I Am, I spelled like the I on your face. His awareness of dynamics and the development of a theme while creating parts is the reason he's in his third decade of a very fruitful career. I hope you enjoy the five records that shaped Johnny Kelly into the drummer he is today. Cheers. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is a, it's a cool concept. I'm excited about it. Oh, thank you, man. Well, and I do have to give props to Eric Winkler, who kind of connected us via your manager. He's a friend of mine from Kansas City, and he's been the biggest typo negative fan forever. So oh, cool. I, I got to say his name on there in front of you so you know <laughs> Eric Winkler. Thanks again. But the question that I've been starting off a lot of these podcasts are, are is... If you were to go into Pro Drum or Nelson Drum Shop and those those shops that have all the grooves of the day videos and they said, hey, Johnny, here's some sticks. We're going to film you for 30 seconds to a minute. Play whatever you want. What would you play? I would probably freeze up. Because yeah, me too. <laughs> always getting put on the spot like that. It's always been awkward. I hate it. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many things. Like, I was influenced by so many. And I was like, I was telling my wife before, this morning when I was filling out the uh, questionnaire, I was like, it's like, I have to pick out five records. I was <laughs> like, it's impossible to pick out five. Because, like, it, there's so many things that would, you know, get left out. Things, you know, like uh, the, the influence that Motown had on me and uh, and a lot of that stuff. I don't even know who the drummers are. I just know that the, the way that the drums were applied in that stuff was amazing. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like a, a lot of times, you know, like if you, if you look at the list, yes, there's a couple of things where the drummers are very specified. But you'll see that it's more song oriented it isn't one of those tower of power drum patterns or something like that but it's the way the context of how the drums are applied in the song is very cool to me absolutely so like you know like to sit there and get i guess the first thing i would go to is the beginning of nib <laughs> from black okay. sabbath yeah, just yeah, that, yeah that simple groove like you know just to get my bearings on what the kick and the snare and the hi-hat sound like together <laughs> yeah no, it's fun because I always ask drummers and I have no like then then they'll kind of throw it back at me. And every time I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like it's not. Yeah, I don't have my go to <laughs> thing either. But yeah, there's really there's like, you know, like those things. It really depends on the mood I'm in. You know, like what kind of what kind of mood I'm in? Did I have a big fight with my wife? Like uh, Josh <laughs> from Typo used to love when I would fight with my ex-wife on the road. 
He's like, you play better. You play more aggressive. I was like, this is not a good way to be. <laughs> <laughs> He'd call your wife. Yeah, Johnny was talking shit about you last night. Yeah, and probably. Yeah, he called my ex-wife. You need to get Johnny pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you know, depending on my mood, like, you know, if I'm in a melancholy mood or something, you know, like I'll, I'll want to maybe play something different or, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm jacked up on coffee and you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's just jump into your number yeah. one. So the okay. first album is Physical Graffiti. The artist Absolutely. Led Zeppelin. Oh yeah. yes, a release here's uh, 1975. Bonzo, of course. I asked you for a few key tracks. Maybe we'll listen to one of them. But in my time of dying, Cashmere, uh, Ten Years Gone, great picks. But yeah, where were you when this record came into your life? Who introduced it to you? All that jazz. When I was a kid, when I was like 11 years old, this was like at the end of the 70s and Led Zeppelin was still together and stuff. And uh, the guy that, I say the guy, he was probably all of maybe like 17, 18 when he taught <laughs> me man. how to play drums. Yeah, yeah but yeah. he was like this adult yeah. that lived down the block from me, taught me how to play drums. The first record that he put on, like to have me just play along to, was uh, Station to Station from David Bowie. Oh, Okay. So then I started, you know, like my friends and I, we were starting to get into our own things. I was already a huge Kiss fan at that point when he was like, you want to learn how to play drums? I was like, oh, like Peter Chris? Yes. You know? Yes. And uh, and then I started, I was, my dad had a couple of Led Zeppelin records. He only had two of them. He had Led Zeppelin two and Houses of the Holy. And then my uncle who lived upstairs with my grandparents at the time, he had the whole catalog. And he, he let me borrow it. I was like, I'm getting into Led Zeppelin. You know, do you have any Led Zeppelin records that I could borrow? And he gave me the whole catalog. And I heard it. And I heard Physical Graffiti, like, you know, just playing it from start to finish. Yeah, there were songs that I heard on the radio. And I'd be like, oh, shit, there's this song on here. It was like, you know, completely blown away. And then as I took all those Led Zeppelin records and went up the block to the guy who taught me how to play drums. And I said, I want to learn how to play like this. <laughs> and he just looked at me. He was like, well, let's slow down a little bit. <laughs> Easy, buddy. He was like, yeah, right, exactly, easy, buddy. We're not there yet. <laughs> but that, and then that was it. That started my journey with uh, being a fanatical, like, you know, John Bonham fan and, and using uh, like those records, those records, everything that you want to know how to do with any kind of rock drumming, it's on that record. Because mm-hmm. there's all different kinds of styles, there's different dynamics, there's d- a different approach. I mean, there's great songs on the record that don't even have drums. So it's, you know, it doesn't mean that drums always have to be in everything, you know. And for a double record, you know, like, I don't think there's a lot of filler on it. There are some fans, there's been this debate, you know, for a long time, you know, like I have this debate about Use Your Illusion with Guns N' Roses. <laughs> mm, okay, yeah. <laughs> but that record, you know. All of it's there. There's aggressive drumming. There's a lot of swing. There's all kinds of different stuff. And the the way the record's mixed, it's crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Like you can hear it. Like I'll put the record on this afternoon. I'll hear something new in it. You know, like I've I've sent you know tracks to engineers. I was like, this is what I want the kit to sound like on this record. <laughs> yeah. Of course it doesn't. You know, I can't. I no can't replicate can. it. I can't replicate it. I can't play like him. You know, like I like, you know, I try. Of course. Like his his type of drumming has lent itself, and it really was the big template that I used for you know for typo negative, which is you know a lot of times less is more. Yes. You know, it's and it's like even though like you know he had great chops and stuff, but it wasn't always on display, and it was always just you know, what was perfect for the song. And I, I can't, I can't think of like a Led Zeppelin song in here and go, 
oh, well, he should have done this instead. Sure. <laughs> Never. Yeah, yeah. You'd get struck by lightning right away if you said yeah, that out loud. Right, exactly. Like, you know, like it's so that record has stayed with me. And it isn't, you know, like Led Zeppelin 4, by the time I was 16 years old, I had been through four copies of Led Zeppelin 4. Mm. You know, just from listening to it constantly. I've just gotten to, now that I'm in my 50s, I could actually listen to Stairway to Heaven again if it comes on the radio. Wow, congratulations. Like, <laughs> I can cool. listen to it now. I, I've gotten past that. You know, it's kind of like, paranoid like you know i can't i have to change the channel i can't i can't listen to it anymore yeah and i'm not there yet to where i can all right you know i'll leave it on oh yeah this is kind of cool yeah i remember that you know or whatever you know there, it doesn't have that nostalgic effect on me yet it's still kind of scarring from playing it in all those sure. bands when i was a kid you know <laughs> physical graffiti still has that staying power awesome well yeah. you were talking about trying to sound like john i was just watching a video of you the 2015 Bonzo Bash for Nam. Uh, I don't believe this song's on Physical Graffiti, but you were playing Since I've Been Loving You, and you sounded fucking awesome. So that that song, there. that's it, it, Physical Graffiti is like my favorite album. Mm -hmm. You know, but Since I've Been Loving You is probably my favorite Zeppelin song. Yeah. And when we did the Bonzo Bash, it was like you know, like they they. You know, like I, I, when I was invited to participate in it, you know, you get the whole list. And of course, everybody's got like all these bashers and things like that. And I was like, I want to do something that's, you know, contrasting to that. I want to do something that's, you know, a little different. And it's, you know, since I've been loving you, you know, the studio version and the BBC version, BBC Sessions version mm -hmm. are outstanding. And it, and it shows a whole different side of John Bonham's playing. And it shows like, you know, like the versatility that he really had. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to present that to, you know, the people that were there and stuff. Which I'm sure was appreciated by the audience. Like, I'm sure, yeah, because it's just like bash, 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 after, bash. After I did it the first time, I played a couple of other uh, Bonzo bashes. And then Tishy, Brian Tishy, who organized it, he was like, you're going to play Since I've Been Loving You again, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'll do it. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know, of course, you know. And then Chad Smith wanted to do it one year. So I got, I got yeah. next. I had to do something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a bad host because we're not going to listen to it right now. I know you did mention that in the BBC sessions, which is later on your list. But before yeah. we move on, let's just listen to a song from Physical Graffiti. So do you want to play In My Time of Dying, Cashmere, 10 Years Gone? What's your, what's your choice? They're all great. It's like, you know, pick one. All Surprise right. me. We could, you know, we'll talk about it. Sure. Sure, sure. <laughs> there's, there's something to talk about in every one of them. Yep, yep. You know? All right. Let's just do 10 Years Gone. Okay. Here we go. Like it just like the sonics of this record are just perfect, you know, and you could hear like you, you hear the separation of everything. It's all crystal clear, like you're sitting in the room standing right next to them, you know, and, and like the air that the drums have when they come in, like, you know, the, 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 the power of the of the toms and they're not really being hit very hard. Like, you know, the dynamic is there's a dynamic there that's going with the with the with the song and with the melody and stuff. But he's it's perfect. And then when the snare comes in, the snare, the snare, the kick in the snare and the hi-hat just are, it, it, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it, and it's pushing and it's pushing the song. It's moving it. You know, there is a little bit of aggression in there. And then, you know, like it, it pulls back a little bit when he goes to the guitar solo where it's just, you know, laying back, but it's, it's killer. And it's like the way the song builds up, like, you know, like you have the, the guitar come in first, then the bass. 
and then you know Robert Plant will come in, and then the whole band comes in from there, and it's like this whole ascension to the you know to the buildup. Yeah, so it's amazing. You know, that's what like that's what Typo tried to do for you know whatever ten records, nine records, whatever we did. Hey, y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud. And it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye well, let's let let's go to number two. A, uh, okay, a, a drummer that is not talked about enough. Bill Ward is the drummer, but the album Sabotage, the artist yes. is Black Sabbath, released here's nineteen seventy five, and and yeah, a few of the key tracks, the Rit, uh, Megalomania. But again, take it away. Where were you? How this get introduced and all that? Uh, I I got into Sabbath kind of late. I didn't discover Sabbath until I was like maybe like thirteen years old. Mm-hmm. 1980, 81, you know, so Ozzy was already out of the band when I, I mean, I was aware of them. Like I knew the paranoid record and, uh, yeah. you know, one of my best friends, we went to his uncle's house one day and we're smoking a joint with his uncle, all of like 12, 13 years old. Sure. Yeah. Great. Uncle. <laughs> and his uncle put on the first black Sabbath record and it was like, I was terrified. Yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, uh, friends of mine in junior high school and stuff, they started turning me on to more Black Sabbath and 
you know, when I finally got around to uh, getting the Sabotage record, I think I bought it like the day I graduated junior high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I bought Sabotage and Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind the same day. Mm. I can remember like, you know, vivid memories of going to buy records and you, you, that doesn't exist anymore. It's a, it's a shame. So anyway, I remember getting, you know, like a, discovering Black Sabbath and buying up the catalog. And I just remember like uh, just hearing it for the first time. And it's like everybody talks about Symptom of the Universe, like, you know, like with Bill Ward or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. But that's not like to me, that's not like really like the meat of the record. Like hearing uh, like, you know, megalomania for the first time, I was like, wow, because it has all these different movements in it and stuff. And and Bill, you know, Bill Ward's playing is bridging all those different pieces together and it does it seamlessly. I've, I've been fortunate enough. I've become friends with Bill. I was going to ask. Yeah, you met him. So, so I've been like, you know, like I try not to fanboy on him too much. <laughs> I try not to. Yeah, yeah. But like he had explained to me once, like uh, – I recorded a song with him. He got me, Kenny and Josh from Typo to play on a song. He wrote a song for Peter hmm. a few years ago and he wanted us to play on it. And so of, co- of course we did. Yeah. I never heard the, I never heard the end result. Like, I don't know if it's finished yet, but, but like, you know, working with him like that, I was able to like, you know, get in his head and uh, the way that he approached drums, he was like, you know, he he was like orchestrating drums, not just playing drums. He was orchestrating. And it was like when he explained that to me, it was like it's like an epiphany or something. I was like, oh, shit. And now, you know, when I hear other stuff back, I'm like, that's exactly what he's doing. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there would be parts in, in songs and stuff where they would be playing like, you know, it seemed like the three of them were all doing different things simultaneously. But Bill's playing kept it all together. He was the hub for you know, all the, you know, ex- experimentation and the, the existential, you know, uh, departures. And and he would, he the parts that he would play to songs were like, you know, it was to create an atmosphere, to create a dynamic and what was going on. It wasn't just chugging along with riffs, you know, kind of like, you know, like, like, like they laid the template for like, you know, doom, doom metal and things like that. But he, he was doing way more and it was so like under the current. You know, it was all very subtle. And then he would come out and he like, you know, of course, he had the total ability to be a complete Neanderthal. (laughs) But it was like a refined Neanderthal. And because he did, he had the ability to, you know, to 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 that versatility to to make these songs move the way that they did. You know, anybody else you hear anybody else try to play a Black Sabbath song and they can't. Mm hmm. I don't want to get into one of the Nuno Betancourt things, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll leave that for another time. I'm, I'm not going to start naming names. Sure. But you know, like if anyone that's like, you know, that, that came after Bill that like, you know, tried to, you know, step in his shoes. It's different. It's different. There's something, there's an element missing, you know, somewhere. And you know, it's not like, you know, the people that played with him afterwards, it's not like they're slackers. They're all great drummers, mm-hmm. but they weren't Bill Ward and Bill Ward had a certain, essence about his playing that made black sabbath perfect you know like when vinnie apice and dio came into the band and stuff totally different band you know mm-hmm. but even you know like even the, the heaven and hell record that bill did you know you could still tell it's bill but it's bill more structured like the songwriting is more structured and stuff like that and bill's you know doing the things that need to be done for the song but it's a different it's a different bill ward yeah and uh, even with uh, like you know born again kind of more free 
on that record. You know, like the songs like Disturbing the Priest and things like that. Like, you know, he was, a, it was like it was like a throwback to like the first record. It had that certain element of chaos in his playing and, you know, urgency. And yeah, like I, I just I guess like last year or something, I did it. I did a session. I did a cover of the song Trashed. And I was like, I hadn't heard the song like since I was a teenager. And I was like, I, you know, I never really like got into the song to like, you know, like break it down or like you know, learn anything from it. You know, I would just like listen to it. It was like, all right, yeah, this is cool. Yeah. And, and so then I, I was like, you know, getting into the song now because I was going to do it for this session. And it, it's not as simple as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very busy song. <laughs> Sabotage had a certain you know, the whole catalog with Ozzy and stuff, there's a certain bite to that record, you know, and then, you know, later on, you know, reading about it and stuff, you know, they were going through all this turmoil with their manager and it was, it was a really bad time for Sabbath and they were very bitter and angry and it came out on the record. Well, it's kind of like you when you were mad at your wife, it's just like, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. Right. If you, right. You get out there and you start breaking things. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's what it sounds like. Like, you know, there's like this, this, this bite to it. And uh, the writ is like the perfect. Uh, well, the writ is about like getting served or something like that. I believe. Oh, like, geez, you know, They got okay. served from their managers and stuff, like <laughs> like habeas corpus. But well, now, like you know, like you know, now learning about like you know their dynamics and stuff, and it, when you when you you read about it and you understand about where they were as people, a lot of what they've done, what they were doing creatively, totally makes a lot of sense. It's like, oh yeah, it's like you know, you you're connecting those dots, and it's. It, and that was, you know, like the the sabotage record. Even though I was very gravitated towards the sabotage record because it was, it wasn't quite the same as their earlier works. You know, well, a Sabbath Bloody Sabbath is a whole different thing. It's mm-hmm. like I think that was like the apex of their their creativity. You know, it wasn't just Supernaut and you know Iron Man and War Pigs. This was like you know this was really they stretched themselves out a little bit. You know, creatively. Sabotage to me was a little bit more back to basics, but the song structures, I think, were a little bit more mature. Mm-hmm. But it has that it has that bite to it. And the things that he was doing, you know, like just from the opening line of the writ, you know, with the wah and everything. And it's like, wow, wow, wow. It's it's so hard to find somebody that could play that straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just listen to the writ. Let's just go. <laughs> Yeah, this is scary as a kid if you hear this. It's great. And then the way the way the drums come in and Ozzy's like just full on screaming at the top of his range. You know, the, the whole the verses are just him screaming his head off. <clears throat> and for people like that don't know, this is the last track on the album. So this is finishing yeah. off the record. Yeah. Like the way the drums and the guitars come in, it's just so powerful. Yeah.
Yeah, it's and it's not like the drumming isn't very extroverted where it's saying like you know it's not a part where the hey look at me you know look at what I'm look at what I fit in here and stuff and it's, mm-hmm. it's just huge it's ginormous where it's just pushing it like it's it's like a herd of mammoth just like walking slowly <laughs> to trample something herd <laughs> trample of mammoth a is a good like band name <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. or like a herd of godzilla is attacking tokyo at the same time yeah, yeah like yeah. walking slow <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. but that that's like that's that's the that's the impression that i get from it and it's, it's just like it's just so huge but it's not you know, it's not very, you know, it's not lick oriented or say, wow, that was a really cool lick in there. But it's like it just it just creates this atmosphere. This It's pissed. But it and it's like even the parts, like all the parts like, you know, that the band are playing, it's relatively simple and powerful. And it's it's it's, you know, supporting, you know, being led by Ozzy's vocals and his vocals just have such impact. And it's probably one of the best things, you know, like one of his best perfor- vocal performances. I agree. Yeah, he sounded great in that one. My God. That probably he could never repeat it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they ever played the song live. I, I'm not sure if they did, but it yeah. probably would have had to have been the first song every night. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, uh, maybe not tonight, guys. Maybe tomorrow night. Yeah. I'm feeling a little verklempt. Um, and, and I don't see it as being a really strong opening song to a Black Sabbath concert either. But, yeah. But it's a great album track. And, it, it, you know, it's it's... You know, it had a big impact on me. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's go to number three. We've already we've already talked about it. It's the BBC Sessions uh, by Led Zeppelin. It was not obviously recorded in 97, but it came out in 97. And yeah, one of the tracks you were talking about that you played at the Bonzo Bash in 2015, Since I've Been Loving You, and then the song Thank You. And yeah. Yeah, like those those two songs i mean they're two of my favorite led zeppelin songs so like they jump out at me like you know when i when i bought the cd i was like oh man live versions of this i was like i never heard a live version of thank you like there really wasn't a lot of stuff available from led zeppelin other other than their catalog and you had the song remains the same and that was it yeah you know and even in the movie up until you know like 20 years ago you only got a little snippet of black dog (laughs) in the movie which didn't make the didn't make the record but the bbc sessions it's they're recordings from like 1970. oh okay so so the band is young like Mm -hmm. uh, and uh like you know obviously i had seen you know i guess like led zeppelin 3 had just come out because there was significant amount of material from 3 on that release and uh, so I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure it's from like 1970. Like for a live recording, it just seems very clear. It feels like you're in the studio with them, like in the studio audience. And the band is just on fire. That's, that's the only way to put it. You know, like they're all young, you know, even like on the studio records, you know, they, there's a vibe to it. But the live versions really took you know, uh, an identity of their own. And they, I th- I'm pretty sure like both of those songs were like staples in their live performance for years. Like Bonham is just like, he's really stretching out on it. So, so yeah, like as far as like Bonham, yeah, there's a lot of overplaying in it, but you know, like what he does a lot of time, it's just so tasty, you know? And it's like, it's even, even though it's being overdone, it's perfect for, for the live performance. I don't know if it was something that was done spontaneous. So like, you know, they worked on it at rehearsals or anything like that, but it just, it, they just stretch out. Same thing, you know, Jimmy Page too. And, uh, you know, like even John Paul Jones with the, with the, on the, you know, in the organ and the keyboards and stuff, 
like he's playing all organ. I think he's playing with foot pedals for the bass and since I've been loving it because it just sounds like there's just like the root notes of the melody mm-hmm. and of Robert Plant too. You know, the emotion that he puts out on it, you know, even in the studio versions is brilliant, you know, and he's literally a child. And I'm like, what kid went through this? You know, exactly. now that I'm an adult, I'm like, what kid went through this? Yeah. What the hell are you talking <laughs> about, man? Kid, He's fine. He just got out of high school. <laughs> you're, that's, you're fine, dude. <laughs> yeah, you got plenty of failure out of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry, bud. It'll come. Um, all right. Well, here's, here's the song. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> here's Since I've Been Loving You. Let's just go to number four. So Motley Crue, the album is Motley Crue. It's their 94 release. And of course, Tommy Lee, weirdly enough, I think he's been brought up one other time on this podcast, which blows my mind. Such a good drummer. Yeah. Power to the music till death to us part. So many good tracks, but take it away. I think like, you know, like in this day and age, I think it might be not the cool thing to say that like, you know, Tommy Lee was an influence, but I'm calling bullshit. Anybody that was like playing drums in 1983, they were into Tommy Lee. Yep. They're lying if they tell you otherwise. I remember as a kid, right, when I got into high school, I started meeting other people that were like, you know, more like-minded, you know, there weren't too many people 
in my neighborhood, you know, friends growing up that were into, you know, like heavy metal and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, when I got to high school, I started meeting people that were more like-minded. I remember I was waiting for Bark at the Moon to come out. Ozzy's Bark at the Moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a record store literally right right around the corner from my high school. So a lot of times stop after school, go to the record store and then walk home. Mm-hmm. And my friend was like, you got to check this band out. Got to check this band out, Motley Crue. And I, I remember him telling me, he was, you know, and I was like, I was like, but I'm waiting for the Ozzy record to come out. I only have money to buy one. <laughs> he goes, go to the record store after school, buy the record. If you don't like it, I'll give you the money. Which at the time, like, you know, buying a record was all like seven, eight dollars. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay. And I went, I went to the store, bought Shout at the Devil and brought it home. And it was like one of those things, you know, like it changed the course of trajectory and stuff. And, yep. you know, and then, and then, you know, like you starting to see more videos on TV, you know, mind you, Brooklyn was the last place to get a 7-Eleven and cable television. <laughs> You know, I I was literally out of high school by the time real cable came to Brooklyn, like my neighborhood. Wow. So like, you know, like going headbangers ball and stuff like that. I I didn't have it. I would have to like, you know, my friends would tape it where they lived, like in Long Island and then make give me a copy of the VHS so I could watch it. (laughs) We're so spoiled these days. (laughs) You know, so uh, so things were kind of limited as far as like, you know, like what you could see, you know, like seeing videos. But anyway, you saw some videos. I saw the for looks to kill and then like you know too young to fall in love i think those were the two that they did from that record but like when you saw it you saw them in the magazines you heard the music and stuff that that was like the tommy lee was was the one that made me want to play double kick because mm. i had never really heard double kick all that much you know because you know, like black sabbath through bill ward didn't really use it a lot john bottom didn't use it it wasn't done in acdc or you know iron maiden or you know so it was pretty limited to, to to that. But like, you know, when I heard Red Hot, I was like, holy shit. I was like, I got to learn how to do this. And I had literally, like, I had just started playing drums again. Like, you know, like I learned how to play when I was a kid. But when I was like 15, I started playing. I was in a band and then I got turned on to this. And so it changed everything for me. You know, then I, I got it. You know, I picked up Too Fast for Love. That was a really cool record, you know, obviously with Livewire and stuff. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was definitely dirtier and more, you know, more raunchier than what was happening at the time. Theater of Pain came out and they kind of lost me. And I was just like, I'm good. Thanks. I'm out. Like, you know, <laughs> done. And, you know, I went to see the show and it was, you know, it was cool. It wasn't blown away by it. And, and it took me a while f- to like, even like Motley Crue again, you know, like it wasn't until Dr. Feelgood came out and I was like, wow, this is cool. But then when Vince left the band and then they came out, came out with that record. I, I I was one of the people at the time I was excited that Karabi was singing for the band because I was familiar with him with uh, The Scream. Mm-hmm. I was like, this guy's a really good, really good singer. You know, he had that real, you know, that kind of raspy-ish, kind of like, you know, like that, that Paul Rogers vibe a little bit, you know, and I was like, wow, him with that band, it could be really cool. And then the record came out and I was like, wow, it's kind of cool. I mean, the lyrics were still kind of hokey, you know, Hooligans Holiday was Kind of, kind of dorky, but the production on the record is out of control. Like, you know, the opening riff, it's, you know, like, I don't even know what key that's in with that, that drop tuning mm. and uh, the, the way the drums come in with Tommy and uh, like, you know, Bob Rock, 
it's just so in your face and it, it just sound like everything's like, you know, tuned pretty low, like the toms are tuned pretty low and like, you know, like the, this, everything's bright, you know, the symbols are bright and stuff like, you know, like the EQ, the production on it is amazing. I've sent that record to a bunch of people too, where I was like, I want that drum sound, you know, from what I understand, like, you know, there wasn't anything like really over the top with production, you know, it's a, 24 inch kick and it sounds monstrous mm-hmm. you know even the snare the snare has like this weird like you know flap to it where it's you know not really bright but it has a lot of presence and it's you know it has a lot of bite to it you know the drums just are really biting they're really in your face and his playing like you know his playing on that record is incredible mm-hmm. i guess because at that point with the new singer or whatever you know they were just going for it yeah fuck it yeah fuck it but yeah, so anyway, you know, like the, I think the drumming reflected that as opposed to like, you know, the more contrived or, you know, like some of the stuff that they were, especially the, the, the stuff afterwards that they did, you know, it didn't have that same, didn't have that same impact. Like, you know, the drums are very prominent on this record. I love that you keep bringing this up because it's a concept that I think a lot of people should do. And this is why I do this podcast because I love hearing about the history of these records. If there's a record that for some reason just touches you, there's something about it look into the history of that record. I'm sure something was going on with the band and there's a reason why oh, yeah. something was captured. I mean, also it has a sentimental uh, attachment to it also because that tour, Typo Negative was yeah. the support band. So like, so every night I was just, like when we, when the tour was, like when our manager told us that we were doing it, I was, my first instinct was, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, I was like, why are we going out with Motley Crue? You know, where, where do we fit in that picture? You know, it's like, you know, we're going to get hit with garbage, you know, for 30 minutes. They're just going to throw stuff at us. Nobody's going to like us. You know, our manager, was, you know, he was just, he was like, you know, very you know, assuring. He was like, don't worry about it. This is a good thing. This will be a good thing for you guys. It wound up being a good thing, you know, and, and you know, looking back on it, it was probably one, it was the, you know, the first major stepping stone in our, in our career. And so he was right. But at the time I was, you know, it was us, King's X and Motley Crue. And I was a big King's X fan. So I was like, this is a terrible career move, but I'm going to enjoy this every night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm going to have a great time. And uh, I would like, you know, if we do our set, everything was all packed up. I would come out and every night I'd pull up a chair and hang out and just watch Tommy play. Well, and it's different too, because it wasn't just like management wanted you guys to go. Wasn't it, if my memory serves me, wasn't it the band heard you guys the band, and yeah, they yeah, were the they ones were, who won? Yeah, they were, they were familiar with us. Like they had uh, got turned on to Bloody Kisses while they were working on this record that we're talking about now. And at the time they were, you know, they were from the way the story goes was like, you know, they were saying we want Typo on the tour and their management, everybody was against it. They're like, you know, this band's worthless. They have no value. They don't bring anything to the table. No you know, butts to and make seats. The, yeah. To, right. They're, yeah. They're not, they're not going to help the tour at all. And they were like, we don't care. We want it. You know, we think the band's cool. We, we want them. We want them on the tour. That's got to feel and good. It was, it was cool. And it, it, that happened to us a lot. It was, you know, like a, you know, like in those early parts, it wasn't because like, you know, the band was a strong draw or could like, you know, do something. Bands liked the type up. Luckily for us, we were able to get some of their fans to buy into what we were doing. Mm-hmm. 
which was shocking, you know, it was surprising, you know, like, you know, like I, I, like, you know, out of a lot, you know, like we did, we did a bunch of tours, like, you know, supporting a, you know, a bunch of big bands. And I was like, when we got the Danzig tour, I was like, this is more in line with what we're doing. You know, I was like, I was like, you know, this, this should be an easy tour for us. You know, it won't yeah. be hard to prove. We won't really have to prove ourselves so much. I was like, this could be good. But like us going out with Queensryche or like going out with Motley Crue, it's like, what are we doing? You know, it's like suicide. It's like, I felt like a kamikaze pilot. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, I was wrong. I can understand why people loved it. I mean, Typo is, was, will always be a great band. Thank you. And it was, you know, like I knew that what we were doing was special and, you know, unique, but I didn't think that like, you know, the casual Queensryche fan would, would give us the time of day. You I know, understand. I, I, yeah. Like, like the same, like a Motley Crue fan, you know, they're listening to girls, girls, girls. And then now we're yeah. going to scream, we're going to scream the words pain into our pickups and uh, jackhammers. And, you know, it's like, that's a whole different headspace. And sure. it was, but, but it, we went over, you know, like right after that, not to get too sidetracked, but like we, we spent, we did a whole summer touring with Motley Crue on that record. That tour ended and the day after we did our last show with Motley Crue, we literally started our own club tour and went back and hit all those markets that we played. Wow. And then all those markets, they were all like, you know, like the, the tour was, you know, was good for us. And it was our own club tour, but there were there were people there and, it, you know, and they were like, we saw you with Motley Crue and, you know. So it opened up a whole different audience to us, but which was great. We just wasn't expecting it. So anyway, let's get back to the record. The record, the drum, the drum production on this record is phenomenal. Tommy's playing on this record. It's the best drumming he's ever he's ever done. Like throughout his whole catalog, this is his definitive record. All right. Well, here's let's start with "Power to the Music," and this is the first song on the record. It starts with that riff that you were talking about, and here we go.
<laughs> All right. So um, number five, the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The artist yes. is The Beatles. Uh, 68, or sorry, 67 it came out. And of course, uh, Richard Starkey, Ringo Starr. A few of the key tracks. I mean, I'm sure everyone knows this record, but Lovely Rita, Day in the Life, one of the greatest songs ever written. But yeah, take it away. Like Ringo Starr to me was like one of the first headbangers. Like if you watch that early footage of the Beatles playing, he is punishing that drum set. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you can see like the whole riser moving and stuff, and like you know, like the just crash his, his ride is like so high. He, and... Yeah, and he's he's got he has you know for a drummer, and especially in the, the the time period, has a tremendous amount of presence, and to also like have that amount of presence to be you know behind Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to be upstaged yeah. by those guys. <laughs> yes, but he did. But right, he didn't. He was he held his own, and um, as their songwriting, you know, progressed after that, you know, it wasn't so much. It was there was a lot of things like you know, the, like just the approach to drum set in itself. It isn't just your standard, you know, kick snare hat, you know, playing along, playing a pattern, and moving to the next song. Those rules really didn't apply. There was a lot of different things. The way that a lot of different things were approached. There were songs where he won't use the hi-hat at all you know just use the kick snare or just a just a snare or you know just something like that or you know like doing like a maybe doing some like percussion thing of answering you know answer, answering a melody line or you know supporting one or like the fills like in in, in lovely rita i mean typo we lifted a lot of stuff from them even like a lot of drum stuff we you know would use those kind of applications we put that in typo stuff Steal from the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, not always, you know, sometimes, you know, like I'd have to lean on, you know, like my Bill Ward influence, my John Bonham, you know, whatever. But there was always room to try to, you know, make something of, you know, just like application instead of just playing something straight through. Just try to do something a little bit different, a little bit abstract or, you know. Try, try, you know, within the context of what we were doing. But it, what he was doing in those in those songs is is incredibly unique. And to do it in a you know in a pop format to me was just like it, I I haven't really seen drums applied in that way. Talk about being underrated, mm-hmm. you know, like Ringo's criminally underrated. He was a brilliant drummer in, in a brilliant band and. You know, like to say that he was less than or, you know, contributed less, you know, there's prob- there probably isn't another person on the planet that has sold more drum sets for a company than Ringo Starr. You know, like Ludwig couldn't keep up yeah. after the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> right. Think about how many drum sets they sold after Ed Sullivan. But he was, you know, like even, you know, like like starting with, you know, more like along the lines of like, you know, like Rubber Soul leading up to it. It's it's very unique in its own way to, to, to apply drums to these songs. It would have been very easy and very, you know, like I know for me, my simple, you know, I, I would have gone to the easy thing and just I would have played a beat through something or, you know, I wouldn't have done, you know, like a like a hi hat snare pattern like in, uh, you know, in my life. You know, and the guy could shuffle like nobody's business. And he's shuffling. He's a southpaw shuffling with his right hand. And it has this swing to it that and he would do it like some of the stuff. I know, like for me, it's really hard, but he would do this, like do these like, you know, like these swing, these shuffle things with his, you know, at at pretty, pretty good tempos. 
And I was like, is that a swing? Is he, is he shuffling there? Or is, am I hearing it differently? It was like, you know, I, like I'm trying to like hear it on the record. And I'm like, I can't do that. Yeah. I mean, they were playing for seven hours a night, like six days a week for years <laughs> yeah, before they even, yeah. I mean, he's just so much practice yeah, doing that. Yeah. And he's, yeah, he really, and he really is unique. And, you know, for anyone to say otherwise that he wasn't a game changer is just in denial. It's funny, every time Ringo gets brought up, everyone feels like, and I understand, they feel like they have to say what you just said. And it sucks. It's like, why, who doesn't think he's the best? I don't understand. Like, oh, there's always haters my... out there, you know? Like, there's, I guess, yeah. There'll, there'll always be haters. And uh, you know, for him, it's totally unjustified. 100%. And it, it, because he really, he truly is. He was the missing ingredient. Yep. And the rest is history. <laughs> yep. Well, here's uh, here's lovely Rita from Sgt. Pepper's. That, that's your big fat five. And I do want to give yeah. you um, a platform if you'd like to talk about I Am, to talk about any dates coming up with Quiet Riot, all that jazz. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm flying out tomorrow. We're going to Missouri. I'm playing in Missouri and Indianapolis with Quiet Riot this weekend. Uh, the new single from I Am is out, uh, Dreams Always Die With The Sun. It came out, I guess, like a month ago, a month and a half ago. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were all in New Orleans together and we, we recorded four more songs. Hell yeah. And like we, I was there, I, I had, I had, you know, like a, I had a few days off in between Quiet Riot gigs. So we went to, went to New Orleans and we were averaging a song a day. So we were, you know, like they were there a couple of days before me. So when I got there, they would show me what they're working on. We worked on it and we tracked. And then the next day we all right, here's this other song that we've been working on. We'd work on that, track it. And so we got four songs done in the four days I was there. And uh, I think we're getting together again in October. That At least that's the plan, you know, get together a few days again and, you know, record more songs, see what comes up of it. And uh, everybody's really excited about it. And uh, I've gotten a mix back from one of the songs. So that, and it came out really cool. So awesome. You know, of course, like, you know, like for me, like we're just working on the music and it's always been hard for me when I'm working on new music to see the big picture of what something's, what a song can be. 
mm-hmm. or what it, what it's going to turn out like. So like, you know, usually I'm just like, you know, you're just working on a riff and you're trying to come up with something to be like, all right, this will be the chorus or, you know, this is the verse and you, you know, sussing that out. And you think that what you're, you know, you put something to that and you'd be like, all right, yeah, this could be cool. This could be a cool verse or, and then you hear, the other stuff like the vocal lines and you hear like, you know, like the, you know, the alternate guitar parts and stuff and be like, wow, that was, I wish that was there when I was recording (laughs) this because I would, they sent me a mix and I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. But now I want to do the drums completely over again. I want to re-record it because now I'm now, because I hear these other instruments, I hear these other things, I hear these vocal lines. It makes me want to play the song differently to, to, to make it better. Like I have to learn to live with that. Yep. You know, they're happy with it. So that that's good. You know, so that they've, you know, when they did their stuff, they're like, no, it's great. But, uh, you know, it's cool. It's unique. Like, uh, you know, I think that people have like this preconceived notion of taking two guys from typo negative and two guys from crowbar and down and putting them in a room together. I think there's a certain expectation of what kind of music will come out of us. You know, like you'll never be able to get away from who you are, but it is pretty different for us you know, for what we're doing, you know, like what comes out is pretty unique. Like I was expecting it to be more like, you know, doomier and slower, you know, like that way. And it was actually, it's not, there's a lot of melody in it and stuff. And it's like a bunch of different things where I'm like, well, I could hear a piano in this, you know, like, or whatever. And it's like, not what I was expecting when you think of crowbar and typo negative. (laughs) So (laughs) was that a discussion you all had? Like, let's just like, no, just like, just go. Okay. Yeah. Just let's get in a room and see what happens. And that's the dreams always die with the sun. That was literally what happened. Like the Kenny and Kirk were, had exchanged a couple of ideas. Like, you know, I have this idea, you know, like for, you know, for a riff or, you know, for a melody line or something. And uh, I got picked up at the airport, literally went from the airport to the rehearsal studio, put my suitcase down, got behind the kit and we started working out an arrangement of the song. And then the next day we went and recorded the drums and I was on a plane back out <laughs> with choir right after I did my tracks. Wow. And then I, then I heard the melody line and, you know, like, like, you know, Kenny would sing a little bit, you know, at rehearsal, like, you know, he's trying to, you know, he's writing the song, he's trying to find something in it. So, you know, I get it like a little idea of what was there or something. I not knowing, not having any idea what he's actually saying or, you know, if there's any meaning, what he's saying, he's just finding melody lines. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, then I, I get a rough, mix of what was there. I was like, wow, it's pretty cool. You know, pretty interesting, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm anxious to hear how it is. You know, it's a cool project, you know, it's a lot of fun and it's cool being in the situation like that where, uh, you know, you just write something and record it onto the next thing, you know, and so it's pretty interesting to see, you know, like the challenge of, you know, you got to come up with something today and it better be cool. You know, because like this is you have your one chance. It's not it's like playing live. You have one chance to get it right during the live performance. Same thing, you know, like with what we're doing here. We have one day to get this song done. So, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, my approach is, you know, I guess like, you know, pretty, pretty pedestrian. Like, you know, just stay in the pocket, you know, and just, you know, just keep it moving forward. Make it feel like it's moving faster than it is. Well, it sounds like you did just that. So um, <laughs> everyone go check it out. Um, well, I'll, I know you have a busy day, so I'll let you go. But I will say, um, before you head into the studio next time, let me know and I'll email you something really mean so that you can really aggressively oh, yeah, yeah. get the drum part. It'd no, be my no, pleasure. Me and my wife, me, me and my wife now, we, we get into it. So it could be, 
could be cool. That's <laughs> a partner right a, there. I try yeah. to bring her with me so that we could duke it out right there yeah, on the yeah, spot yeah, yeah. and then go play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, one more thing. We yeah. have uh, what's going on. The got a new Kill Devil Hill record coming out. Oh, awesome. Yeah, coming out of, well, now, yeah, right. Next month is September. Wow, this year went fast. Don't even get me started. Yeah, my the God. The first part of the year was really slow, and I was home a lot, and I barely had any work, barely any shows. And since, like, since Maggie, barely home. Wow. And now it's, you know, now we're already in the first week of August. I can't believe it. I'm still thinking, like, it's June. I know, yeah. May showers <laughs> coming up soon, yeah. So anyway, the new Kill, new Kill Devil Hill record will be coming out next month. And we've been uh, releasing singles, you know, every few weeks. We got it. We have a few of them out. And we just did one uh, last week. You know, people are interested, you know, to check that out. You know, and it's pretty cool. It's a little bit of a departure for me as, as a player. You know, it's a little mm-hmm. different, which is cool and exciting. You know, and I, I, I love, I love playing with them. And uh, the record came out pretty cool. People go check it out, uh, but when the album comes out, go buy it. I mean, actually buy buy the record, support <laughs> that'd, everyone. That'd be nice. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be well, nice. <laughs> I mean, you've been doing this for so long, man. You have such a long career, and so it's it was it was really fun to talk to you. Uh, it's honor to say the least. So, um, on keep paper, it up. it's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, Johnny, uh, again, thank you so much, man. Um, Thank you. you This this was a lot of fun. I don't really get to talk drums a lot. Hell yeah. Usually talking talking about the band, you know, the the band as a whole and like, you know, the new music, but I don't really get too many opportunities to sit there and like, you know, like talk about the things that, you know, that influence me like that, you know, to, to go into a lot of detail like that, you know. Yeah, well, you did a great job. It was. Uh, I definitely want to go listen. I want to go buy the BBC sessions of of Zeppelin. That it's was like un- a good. It record. really is unbelievable. Like yeah, you know, like the band is literally on fire. Yeah, and like you mentioned records, but if there's, I guess I could have put it in the footnotes. The uh, the Led Zeppelin DVD that came out like 20 years ago. Mm. It was like a multi multi disc DVD. It was like a different concerts and uh. The, the most incredible thing that I've ever seen of Bonham was uh, the disc of Royal Albert Hall, 1970. Okay. It's unbelievable. And it's video. So you get to see a lot. You're like, oh shit, how did he do that? Like, you know, like, it's it's great. All right, Johnny. Well, um, I'm sure we'll we'll talk soon, man. But um, uh, next time you're in town, I'm, I'm definitely going to check you out. So All right, cool, I'll see man. you soon. Thanks. Bye, Johnny. Bye. And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.